works. You could say this, action. You could say obedience. You could say active faith. You could say a faith that's alive. Remember, James's point here is not that we work for the salvation. His point here is that when the salvation is real, when the salvation is truly true, there are going to be evidences, proof that the salvation is real. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. So, Father, we just come before you today, we we lift you up, we magnify your name, we extol you, we give you praise, we give you glory, we just simply say that, Jesus, you are the name that's above every name. And so we worship you today. God, I pray that you would speak in a, in a powerful way today as we open the word, as we mine the scriptures. God, I pray that you would speak. Not the broken messenger, but you. So would you speak, God, right now? I pray you'd speak to each one of us right where we are. I pray we'd hear you clearly. Hide me behind the shadows of the cross, God. I pray I would decrease and that you would infinitely increase, God, for your praise, for your glory. If we hear from a human man today, we lose. Everyone loses. But if we hear from you, Jesus, the man, that's when we win. And so, God, would you do that right now? Just right now where we are individually. Just drive the word deep into the bedrock of our souls. Drive it deep like a dagger that would cut in such a way that would both challenge but encourage all at the same time. And so, God, we give you this time as we lift your name and lift your word on high. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Take that Bible. We're back in the book of James, James chapter 2. Going to be looking at verses 21 through 24 today. So take that Bible out, looking at James chapter 2. The titles you'll see there is simply this, obedience, what's the big deal? Obedience, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with obedience? What's the big deal with faith and works? What's the big deal? Well, I pray today we're going to see the big deal as we look at this text together. And so in James chapter 2, I'm going to start with verse 21. And by the way, this is going to start a seven-verse section that we're going to be in for two weeks where James is going to give us three potent examples of what it looks like, what it looks like to have intellectual faith that also has obedience as a component of the intellectual faith. So here is our key one, so to speak, or example one, in verse 21 of James 2. It says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So there's a question, and we're going to see this question here in just a moment. Now look at verse 22 in your Bible. You see that faith was active along with his works. Don't miss that. And faith was completed by his works. Now look at 23, he's going to unpack this and explain it even in deeper detail. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Interesting. Lastly, 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now jump up in your Bible for our context Go up to verse 18, make sure we're springboarding as context is always king. So look at James 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So we have an apart and now we have a by. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, make a note of that, you foolish person, 
that faith apart from works is useless. Out of the gate, James is saying, look, I'm going to address my Jewish audience. Remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience, so he goes where the context there is contextualized, that they understand what he's talking about when he's speaking of Abraham. He, they get this. Uh, they know Father Abraham, and it's more than a song that we sing as kids, uh, that they get this. They, they know it's real. It's part of who they are in that Jewish culture. And he says here in verse 18, if you look there in your Bible, you know, some say, hey, you got faith, and some have works. Then he says, show me. There's that, that key word, show me. Show me. In other words, evidence this. Just don't say you have an intellectual faith. Just don't raise the hand and say the prayer, and then nothing happens. He's saying, I want to see evidence of a faith that's real, a faith that's alive, a faith that's working. He says, look, you say there is this God. Even the demons believe this. Intellectually, they're there. They even take it a step further, and they have an emotional reaction. They shudder. They tremble at the name of God, at the name of Jesus. But we have to go from the mind to the heart, don't we? If your faith is just intellectual, if that's all it is, and that's the struggle in the American church that I've seen now for years, We've dumbed this thing down to an intellectual set of do, do, and do. Boy, if you just do this, then, hey, you're in the club. And the Word says, no, 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 that's not how this works. The Word says, look, you need to have an intellectual faith. It's good to have emotion. But the key is the heart has to be radically rocked. The heart has to be radically gripped. If we're just saying, look, we're going to hang our hat on intellectually knowing Jesus and emotionally knowing Jesus, but the heart has never been transformed, here's the deal, the heart has never been transformed. It's all in vain. Now, that's a struggle in our culture because, as I said, that's how we do things here in the West. But we don't operate according to the West, we operate according to the Word. So here's what happens in verse 21. Look at 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Think about this. So, so here James does the showing and what faith and works look like. So he pulls from Abraham and one of the greatest examples of what Abraham did by showing his faith. I mean, let me read that again. Just let this sink in for you parents for a moment. Here it is. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar? I mean, think about this. We're going to proceed through these verses over the next couple weeks. And James is not insinuating, church, he's not insinuating when you look at your Bible that there are two paths to salvation. That's not what he's saying when you look at this. No, there's not two paths, faith and works. That's not what he's saying. His point is that there are two types of faith being professed. So there's a faith that says, hey, it's alive and it's shown by works. There's a faith that's actually dead because it's not backed up by works, obedience. And he says, look, Abraham was justified. He was declared righteous. Justification is one of the most beautiful terminology pieces in all of doctrine of Scripture justified, declared righteous, that we are literally through the blood of Jesus Christ, not by what you do or I do, we are declared righteous. That is so glorious, isn't it? For you, the true believer, when you understand your wickedness, my wickedness, I get this, I see my sin for what it is, and yet Christ has stamped me. He stamped you, the true believer, with his blood, his insignia ring, that you're sealed for the day of redemption. You are declared. Not like, hey, we're going to say you're righteous and cross our fingers. No, there's a declaration. Don't miss this. Justification is you are literally declared. There's a definitive statement that when you give your life to Christ, you are declared righteous. Like declared doesn't mean we don't struggle, guilty. doesn't mean we don't sin, guilty. But there's now a declaration upon your life that your life is no longer your own. There's a total surrender, a total abandon as you now live for the Lord. So Abraham, our father, was justified, declared righteous by works. Now, hang in there with me on this. 
works. You could say this, action. You could say obedience. You could say active faith. You could say a faith that's alive. Remember, James's point here is not that we work for the salvation. His point here is that when the salvation is real, when the salvation is truly true, there are going to be evidences, proof that the salvation is real. That's his whole point. And when he says this here, he says, look, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So he, he places Isaac on this altar. Now, again, your parents think through this, so I'm assuming you love your children. Like, I don't have to think for a second on this that if I had to give one of my children for you, even though I like being here, we're having a really good time, had an amazing 830 service, God moved in a powerful way, but if it comes down to me giving one of my children for you, don't have to pray about it, it's not going to happen. Like, don't even need to think about it, it's not happening. And yet God in His infinite mercy and His infinite grace says here, I'm going to give you what's most important to me, God says, so that you, John, put your name in there so that you, fill in the blank, can be free from the grip of the enemy, free from the enemy of self. You're no longer walking in darkness, you're walking in light, no longer in the power of Satan, now in the power of God. You can now be free from that. And the only way that freedom comes is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other way to be saved, but only by the name of Jesus. People say that sounds exclusive. It is. His name is Jesus. He's the only way. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. And so here James is, so paint this picture. So he's talking to the Jewish audience and he says, look, you want to see an example of faith and works and how they work together? I'm going to give you one. Here's Father Abraham, who had many sons. And sure enough, what happens? He's going to offer up his son. Now think about this for a moment. When you think about Father Abraham, I mean, you think about Isaac, and he's going to be the heir, isn't he? So if Abraham is promised, which he was, to be the father of many nations, what happens if he kills the heir? Well, if he kills him, what happens there's not going to be that kingdom, so to speak. That's not how God works. In our finite thinking, that's how we think. But God says, look, you obey me, you trust the consequences of your obedience to me, and then you watch me part your Red Seas and part your Jordans. Because God says, I'm the master of parting the waters. That's why I want you to write down key number one. Write this down, key number one. So here it is, key number one. In order to live in faith and obedience, in order to live in faith and obedience to the Lord, we must lay all of our Isaacs on the altar. Key number one, write it down. In order to live in faith and obedience, so faith and works to the Lord, we must lay all of our Isaacs on the altar. I mean, think about this for a moment. Not only lay your Isaacs on the altar, but push back from the altar. Isn't it easy to put our Isaacs on the altar and then we're still trying to grapple for our Isaacs, aren't we? We put them on the altar and we just kind of hang around. And, hey, let me keep grabbing over here. Grab. No, 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 push back. Because the reality is this, our faith will be proved to be real when we give God what is most important to us. Think through that thought for a moment. So your faith and my faith will prove to be real when we get to the point of giving God what's most important to us, if we're just giving God the leftovers, what are we saying about God? If we're just giving God the leftovers, what are we saying about the object of our faith? Do we really trust Him? Do we really rely on Him? That's a struggle for me personally. That's been a struggle for me now for a while that it's easy to give God the leftovers in certain areas of my life. And I'm learning even right now, I'm learning this, that I got to give God everything, total surrender, total abandon, push back from the altar. Write down Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15, verse six. So this is that Abrahamic covenant. And, you know, Abraham, he means father of multitude, that name, Abraham, father of multitude. Isaac means this, to laugh. 
And so here in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, 6, here's what is said. And he, Abram, he was Abram, and then they added the ham later. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So think through that. So Genesis 15 is first. Isaac on the altar is Genesis 22, 15 before 22. He's declared righteous first, and then the works follow. Please understand this process. But also understand this, that for the true believer, works, obedience, active faith will always follow. If it's real, there will be a desire to be obedient. Amen? Amen. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was declared, imputed. Isn't that so glorious? So we call it the great exchange. So Jesus says to you, to me, that when we place our faith in him, that the grace has been lavished upon us through this great exchange. That's what he does. Jesus says, look, here, I got a deal for you. Why don't you give me all of your junk, all your baggage, all your sin, your shame, your guilt, all your struggles? And Jesus goes, and I'll give you my righteousness. And that's a crummy deal for Jesus, isn't it? You want to talk about, I hear people all the time say, well, God's not fair. Fair? You really want God to be fair to you and to me? I'm glad he's not fair, amen? Well, if he was fair to me, man, I'm in a bad situation, right? I'm in deep trouble. And yet, here's what happens. Jesus says here, I'm going to give my life that you might be free from the enemy of self, that you might no longer walk in that. So now in Genesis 22, write this one down. So this is 9 through 14. I'm going to read it to you. So again, Genesis 15, Abraham was justified first, and then... His faith was proved, here it is, to be true in Genesis 22. And this just shows that Abraham's all in. Like this shows he's all in regarding his faith, faith in action. Here it is, 22, 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Now, Scripture's silent right there, but... Can you imagine the conversation that was going on? I mean, you're putting your boy on the altar and laying the wood there and tying him up on the altar and taking care of business. And can you imagine what's going on? It says that Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. It's a picture. So he's on the altar. He's going he's to lay his inheritance on the altar is what he's doing. He's literally laying his inheritance on the altar. And he stretches out his hand. Right here, the word says, reached out his hand and took the knives to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord came on the scene, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, don't miss this church, for now I know that you fear God. See, there's proof, there's evidence. Now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, amen? As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You see the story here. You see this. His faith, he was justified in Genesis 15. It was counted to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Genesis 22, which this will always happen in the true believer's life, when your faith has been professed, at some point in the journey, your faith will be tested. At some point in your journey, your faith is going to be tested to see if it's really real. Is it just a sham and a charade? Are we good sayers? Or ultimately, are we good obeyers? See, the faith and the works go hand in hand. I was processing that thought and just thinking through a couple other concepts, and I came across this this quote from a commentator. Listen to what they said. Abraham was not saved by faith plus works, but by faith that works. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. Abraham was not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that works. See, the faith that's real will be a working act of faith. 
That's the whole point of the salvation, that you're no longer the same. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. We all do. We all have sin challenges. Paul said, why do I do the things I don't want to do? We're in this body of death. We're constantly warring against the flesh. But there's a desire to do the right things. There's a desire to live for the Lord. There's a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Think about this. You know, many times we think about our Isaacs just as material things often, don't we? You know, if you hear a preacher say, lay your Isaacs on the altar, we go, okay, I want to you know, put the car and the house and the bank account and the sailboat and the, the condo on the beach or whatever. And perhaps those are your Isaacs. But the more I got to thinking about this, aren't our Isaacs also as weird and as warped and as twisted as this is? Sometimes our Isaacs are rationalized sin. We want to hang on to these things, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the jealousy, the pride, the selfishness. And by the way, think about this for a moment. If we have a big sin in our life, let's say that you're a bank robber. Any bank robbers in the room? Not too many bank robbers. If you're a bank robber, that's a pretty easy sin to repent from. I mean, it's a big sin and there's big consequences and we don't want to walk that road any longer. But have you noticed being selfish and being prideful, unforgiving and bitter and resentful and jealous and envious? Man, those are hard sins to root out, aren't they? But they get deep, don't they? I mean, they're so subtle, they're so covert. As we talk about often, they're that carbon monoxide of sin. Many times we don't even know they're in our lives. But man, what they do is they seep in, they creep in, and then they dig their roots deep. And they begin just to intertwine around our souls, don't they? It's hard to get those out. I mean, that can be a real process at times. We can repent often of the really big sins and go, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't know if I want to let go of that selfishness. I don't know if I want to let go of that unforgiveness or that pride or that envy. But it's so easy, isn't it, for it to, to seep into our lives. That's why in 22 and 23 in your Bible, those next verses, he explains this even further. He says, look, you see that faith was active, make a note of that, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So it was active along with, completed by, and the scripture was fulfilled, love that, that says, here it is, Genesis 15, 6, we just read it, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend to God. Who today, by show of hands, wants to be called a friend to God? Anybody? Man, I hope that I can be called a friend to God. Amen? What an awesome testimony to have that just on your tombstone. I mean, nothing else, right? Just she, he was a friend of God. Man, what an incredible, incredible compliment from Scripture that he was a friend of God. Literally, when you look at that and you see that in the Hebrew, it's so glorious. It means this to be a close associate. That's pretty cool that God says, hey, you're a close associate of mine. That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, just think about that. Well, how did he get there? How did God view him like that? We'll go back up in the text. Here it is. His faith was active along with his works. Literally, along with means this. It's where we get our English word synergy. So think about this. So all across this room today, all of us here in the church house today, imagine if we're all rowing in the same direction towards one goal. When we're all rowing in the same direction with one goal, God's glory, be a disciple that makes disciples. That's our mission at Enon Baptist Church. Real simple. Glory of God in everything we do, be disciples that make disciples. When we start rowing in that direction, imagine the synergy, imagine the energy. Now, when there's discord and strife and division and backbiting and gossip and slander, what happens? Well, you got somebody rowing this way and somebody rowing that way. And what happens to your boat? Well, you're just kind of going around in circles, right? Probably going to sink at some point. This is the whole point he's trying to paint here in that picture, that his faith had synergy along with his works. That in the midst of this faith saying, man, I'm all yours, and by the way, I'm going to show you, God, how all in I am. You say, go sacrifice your only son, which is my inheritance. I'm putting my Isaac on the altar. Like, I'm doing it right now. Matter of fact, when you read Genesis 22, and you go up in verse 1 through verse 8, 
there's a portion of that text that says this, that here Abraham is, and he's journeying with the other fellow guys that are with him. And at some point, he came to a break there where just him and Isaac had to go off together. And I love what it says here. He looks at the other guys, and he looks at the other guys, and he says this. He says, we will come back. Now, that's awesome, isn't it? I'm going to sacrifice my only son. Let me give you the cliff notes. We, plural, we're coming back. That is incredible faith. Abraham is saying, look, I'm going to follow in obedience regardless of the cost, no matter how much it costs me, because I believe without any shadow of a doubt that God is somehow going to make a way where there seems to be no way. Perhaps Abraham believed, look, if I do execute my son, I believe God will raise him from the dead because we will return to you. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. Do you see what that faith does? I mean, what does that do? You just think about someone you know who has boldness, that has faith, that has courage. What does it do to everyone else? Boy, it lifts, doesn't it? It encourages, it stiffens the spine of everyone else. You get just one person that says, you know what? I'm going to go. Even if none go with us, I'll do it. I'll be the one that goes. I'll stand on the edge. When just one person does that, it stiffens the spine of everyone else. You see what happens through this, that faith was completed, made to perfection. I love that, made to perfection. It was accomplished. And by the way, it was another declaration. When you look at that in the Hebrew, I love that. Faith was completed by his works. It was a declaration. Like, boom, there it is. And then 23, the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God, not intellectual, not passive. There's an active faith going on here. It's confidence. It's belief in action. It was counted to him. There it is again. It was reckoned. It was imputed to him as righteousness, the condition that's acceptable to God. And he's a friend of God. So think about key number two. I want you to write this down. Key number two. Here it is. Key number two. Faith and works do not contradict one another. They complement one another. Let me say that again. Write it down. Key number two. Faith and works do not contradict one another. They complement one another. I mean, think about this. Paul directly addressed that you cannot rely solely on works and be saved. That's what Paul addressed. James addressed that you cannot rely solely on a profession of faith and be saved because here's the deal. What if you're lying? You ever thought about this? I mean, what if you're not being truthful? Hey, I raise the hand, say the prayer, do the cartwheel, sign the card, get dunked. But what if I'm lying? What if I'm doing it because my parents want me to do it? What if you're doing it because peer pressure and every other kid ran forward at the end of the youth service? And that's what we do, right? We just all go forward. I mean, these things actually happen. I was thinking through that thought and I remember a time, this was a number of years ago, I was at another church and we had one of these evangelism days. So it was like on a Saturday, we, we brought a guy in to kind of help train us on evangelism. And he was kind of one of those, more of the hard sell, the, the hard close, right? You know, go, here's your prospect, you know, and kind, kind of get him in the corner, kind of lock the door, so to speak, you know. Don't let them leave until they make Jesus their Lord, right? I can remember, so someone actually walked in. God is my witness. What I'm going to tell you next is the exact truth. And someone walked in, this gathering we were having, and this guy looked at them and saw a prospect and began to ratchet down. And so the person's just listening and, you know, do you want to profess Jesus? And he was walking through every little step, what to do. They said, absolutely, sure do, and repeat after me and 
you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not making this up. The person said, I need to go make a phone call. And something inside of me said, go follow that person. So I just followed that person because they didn't have a cell phone. They wanted to use a landline. So I walked into this office and it was just outside the office, but could hear. And this is what they said. I am not making this up. So they remember, they've just professed Jesus. They just said the lingo. They just said the mantra. They just prayed the prayer. And this is what they said. They're talking to so-and-so on the phone. And they said, hey, so-and-so. They said, yeah, I'll see you in a little bit. And I'm bringing Satan with me. Like, I'm not making this up. They just professed Jesus three minutes ago. And now they're going to so-and-so's house and they're bringing Satan with them. I mean, this is what goes on. This is the reality of Ephesians 6 spiritual warfare, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There is a realness going on out there. And and one of my fears, church, is to be blunt, my fear is there's going to be a lot of baptized people that end up in a godless hell. They never gave their life to Jesus. They did all the right things. They did all the external, but they didn't do the one thing they should have done, that was give their life to Christ. Ephesians, write it down. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but wanted to come back to it because this is the verse or verses that's used to say, hey, look, it's all about grace. Well, let's read the whole section, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 together. So here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Check. And this is not of your own doing. Check. It's the gift of God, check. Not a result of works, check. So that no one may boast, check. And typically it ends right there. See, we told you so. Well, you gotta read the end of the verses. Here it is. So for we are his workmanship, here we go, created in Christ Jesus, why? Right there it is, why? For good works, for obedience, for action, for a faith that's alive. We're not created so that we can just do this external profession. Nothing changes on the inside, but hey, we got the fire insurance and we're going to the Disneyland in the sky. That's not how this works. This is about lives that get changed. And my fear is in the American church, we got so many people, oftentimes, to be very direct, oftentimes, here's what we do. We're really good at best, at best creating backsliders and really good at creating false converts. We've sold people a bill of goods. This is not about just doing this external and then you go back to the life as you were before. This is about doing external, they're good things, but the life is now changed. There's a different person going forward. There's a desire, and when we sin, and I'm good at this, I'm a good sinner, ask my family, I'm a good sinner, When we sin and it's been revealed, prayerfully we'll be that person that says, well, I got to repent. I want to make things right with that friend, with that coworker, with that family member. You want to make it right because you see it. The blinders have been removed. The deception is no longer there. We are created for good works. We're created for obedience and action. That's a faith that's alive. Not a Sunday morning faith. We've got too many people all over this country that have Sunday morning faith. Sunday morning only. Hey, I'm in for Jesus, really. What are you willing to do for Jesus? Not a whole lot. Are you really in for Jesus? My fear is there are so many people that don't truly understand what it means to be saved. How about Titus? Just write this down. This is Titus 1, verse 16. And this is Paul. He's imploring Titus, young Titus, regarding the qualifications of elders, pastors. And so I'm speaking to people like me, but I want you to learn from this because you can be a deacon, you can be a Sunday school teacher, you can be a lay person and still fall into the same trap. So here's what Paul tells Titus. And in chapter one, I'm gonna back up here and give you a couple verses and then get into verse 16. So he says this in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate. In other words, they don't wanna joyfully submit when they march the beat of their own drum, and if you try to give them guidance or teaching or correction, uh, they're going to have nothing of it. They're going to cause problems. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. Now, remember, he's talking about pastors here, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, look at verse 11. They must be silenced. 
since they are doing what? They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're causing division is what he's saying. Now here's verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by what? By their works. Did you catch that? They profess, man, I'm all in for Jesus, but their actions, their life is preaching a whole different message. Not saying that we don't fail, we all fail, but when I'm confronted, when you are confronted, I pray that we go, you know what, you're right. I am walking in deception, I'm walking in sin. I gotta get this thing corrected immediately and make the reconciliation. I gotta reach out and and restore what God wants me to restore and you vice versa. Right there it is. They profess to know God. Talk, talk, talk. But they deny Him. By what? And how they live. Their actions, their disobedience. I want you to think through something for a moment, church. I think this is important to look at. But when you think about pre-conversion in your life, in my life, and let's call it post-conversion, after conversion, after giving our lives to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, I just took one chapter in all of the Bible And here's what I was able to pull out from this. I want you to listen to just what one chapter says. Just one chapter, Ephesians 2. Look what pre-Christ versus post-Christ. Pre-conversion, post-conversion. Look what one chapter says. I love this. Here it is. Before we're converted, we were spiritually dead. We once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath, having no hope. We were once far off. We had enmity with God and were strangers and foreigners to God. Now, that doesn't sound too good, does it? This is pre-Jesus. This is the reality of who all of us are. Every one of us, you, me, your sons, your daughters, your parents, every person who's ever lived who has not given their life to Christ, that's them, that's us. Now here, for the true believer who gives their life to Christ and has a faith that backs this up, through action obedience, I love this, but God, those two words, but God, made us alive together with Christ. We have been what? Raised. We have been made to sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus that we might show, there's that word, the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We now have the gift of God. We are his workmanship created for good works. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus himself is our peace. Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. Christ abolished and put to death the enmity, that division between God and man. Christ created the new man and made peace with God. We were reconciled to God by Christ. Through Christ, we now have access to the Father. And we, I love this, are now fellow citizens and saints because of Jesus Christ, amen? That's a hallelujah moment for the true believer, isn't it? You think through that, though, and do you see why Satan is so vicious with his lies? I mean, do you see the contrast of not being in Christ and being in Christ? And do you see what Satan views? And he goes, wait a minute, I got so much to lose here. Man, I'm going to kill, steal, and destroy. I'm going to plant every landmine I can of deception, untruth, non-truth, even a sliver just to bend it a little bit, get people talking over here, get them off of Jesus, and here go the divisions in homes, in businesses, in ball teams, in churches, all because we've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. You see how critical this is, church? That we walk in a faith that gives evidence that the faith is real. Not just a profession. Even the demons believe intellectually. And they take it a step further They tremble and they shudder. Now, this is a faith that when God says, put your Isaacs on the altar, we say, yes, Lord, here we go. We're all in for you. So how about verse 24, the last verse? And then James, one more swing for the fence, so to speak, to drive this point home. He says this, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So In these short verses, he just continues to take the hammer and just pound this thing home. 
He is trying to show the audience then and the audience today that a faith that is alive and real will have a faith that is active, that is working present tense, that is alive, that is vibrant, that is seeking to live for the Lord all the days of that person's life. That's why key number three, I want you to write this down. Key number three, here it is, last key. True saving faith will be revealed by godly fruit in a truly saved person's life. Let me say that again, key number three. True saving faith will be revealed by godly fruit in a truly saved person's life. Think about it like this. So God-centered faith is always accompanied by God-centered fruit. God-centered faith is always accompanied by God-centered fruit. If you want to know if your faith is centered in God, look at your life and just look at the fruit you're producing. Now again, use me as an example. I've had some lousy rotten fruit recently. Well, I've repented from that and prayerfully I'm walking in a new direction in those areas of struggle in my life. James's point is not that there's perfection, but when you look at the totality of someone's life, you're going to see a theme of godly fruit. There's going to be a theme there. There's going to be a theme there of godly fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the gentleness and the kindness, the self-control, that will be evident in a true believer, especially, especially along with humility. The mark of a believer, I believe when I look at Scripture from Old Testament to New, that you see in their lives is an ever-growing humility. There should be an ever-growing humility. Here's why. Because as you grow in Christ, you now see how great He is, and I now see how great my sin is. And when I see how great Jesus is, and I see how great my sin is, how could you be prideful in that equation? I mean, you look at it going, oh, man, I'm just a wretch. I mean, you're worthy. And yet so often, you see people who have made this profession verbally, and you don't see any growth in humility. A prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Literally, a prideful Christian is a contradiction. You say, how do you know that? Well, God's word says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's what that means. The opposing in the original language, the Greek means this, to be in direct opposition to. So just think about that for a moment. So if you're prideful, if I'm prideful, we are in direct opposition to the great God of the Bible. Like, how's that one working out, right? Right? I mean, that's serious business, isn't it? We're in direct opposition, but it gives grace, charis, unmerited favor to what? The humble. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those that live as Christ, knowing that dying daily to self is the true gain. One commentator said it like this. He said, no man will ever be moved to action without faith. And no man's faith is genuine unless it's moved him into action. Did you catch that? No man will ever be moved to action without faith. And no man's faith is genuine unless it moves him into action. Substitute the word action for obedience. Let me read this again. No man will ever be moved to obedience without faith. And no man's faith is genuine unless it moves him into obedience. Think about John 15. Write that one down for a moment here. John 15. I'm going to give you two verses, verse 5 and also 8. John 15, 5 and 8. And as I read this, I want you to think about this for a moment. So if you have an orchard in your yard, maybe you have a, a tree that bears fruit, for that tree to truly be alive, it has to do what? Not a trick question. It has to bear fruit. It's the same principle with a true believer's life, that we must be bearing godly fruit. You say, how do you know? Well, look at John 15. Here it is, John 15, verse 5 and 8. I, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So who's the vine? 
Jesus, who are the branches? We are. Whoever abides in me and I in him. So do you see how this is working together? He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can't do jack, right? I mean, literally, you're dead in the water. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, by this. So don't miss this. So he's taking this command and he's saying, look, here's what you must do. And by this obedience, here's what's going to happen. My father is glorified. Hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Key number one, you know, in Baptist church, give glory to God. Number two, that you bear much fruit. That's being disciples, right? We're bearing fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now we're proving to a lost and dying world, there's evidence of this. If all we're doing is saying, hey, man, I'm a good churchgoer, that's fantastic. But what do people see in my life and your life? Because they're looking for something to dull the pain and fill the void. Everyone around you and your neighborhood is hurting. When you go to work, they're hurting. They're looking for something. That's why people live for the weekend, right? Why do people live for the weekend? Man, their life is so miserable Monday through Friday, they can't wait for Friday night because they want anything just to drown out the week, right? Man, let's live for the weekend. We'll deal with Monday when it gets here. But man, let's live for the weekend. Let's escape this. Let's detach from reality. Jesus says, I want to become your reality. When you give your life to me, I am now your reality. I'm who you live for. I'm who you die for. I will do all things in you, through you, and beyond you as you give your life to me. But there's a lot of pain in that offering as we put our Isaacs on the altar. That's why the takeaway question is simply this. Does the life I live give evidence that I have genuinely given my life to the Lord and my life is no longer my own. Let me say that again. Take away question. Here it is. Does the life I live give evidence, key, evidence, proof, action, obedience, that I have genuinely given my life to the Lord and my life is no longer my own? If you answer no, let me just ask you a question. I pray no one did, and I pray it was real, and I pray everyone's on target, and we're moving along for Jesus, and we're excited, and it's going to be an awesome week. Praise God. But maybe you're truthfully sitting here going, you know what? I'm answering no to that. Let me ask you a second question. Does that bother you? If you answer no, does that bother you? It's okay to be bothered. That's actually a good thing to be bothered. And when we're bothered, the Holy Spirit's working, isn't He? That's a good thing to be bothered. Man, if we're not truly in for Jesus, if it's all a sham and a charade, raised the hand and said the prayer, did all the deal, but there's no heart change, how could I as your pastor not stand here and say, don't play around with your eternal destiny? Like, why would you want to play around with that? Like you can't play with that. It's too important. It's too critical that we live a life that's fully in, fully devoted for Christ. I want to give you a final scripture before the action step that will back this thought up of truly examining our lives. Write down 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes here to the church in Corinth, that church that was so messed up and had so many issues. He said, examine yourselves not your neighbor, examine you, me, to see whether you are in the faith. Well, that's pretty just to the point, isn't it? Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Did you see that? We're to examine ourselves. I got to look at myself. You got to look at you. Don't look at your spouse, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your parent. Just look at you. I look at me and go, am I really in the faith? Like, is this real? Like, is this real? Like, like, would I be convicted of being a Christian if I went on trial? Would you be convicted if they hauled you away today? Would you be convicted with a jury go, man, there's no doubt. Man, you're guilty. Man, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Or would they look at me and look at you and go, well, I'm not so sure about this one. Sunday looks pretty good, but not sure about the other days. Test yourselves, examine, put under the microscope is what that means to truly see if we're in the faith. That's why the action step, here it is, action step. I will rest in the saving grace of God and also aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Action step. I will rest in the saving grace of God. That's awesome. But again, our faith without works is dead, so I also will aim to be well-pleasing to Him. We need to have a, a faithful adherence to a cause. And the cause for the true believer is the gospel above all. And that should be our mission in everything we do. You get up tomorrow morning, I get up, and prayerfully we'll be saying, okay, God, where are we going today? Like, what are you doing with my life today, God? Where are we going? How can you use me to minister to someone else today? That should be our mantra. And the bottom line, when you think through this, is I can't make you obey, and you can't make me obey. And we have to desire and hunger and thirst to live a life of obedience starting today. Does obedience really matter? What do you guys think? I know it does. It's a huge deal. You know how I know? Because Jesus says this in Luke. This is what Jesus said in Luke. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I ask you to do? Why do you call me Lord, Lord on Sunday mornings and refuse to obey me and what I'm asking you to do? Does obedience matter? You bet it does. Let's be great obeyers and just not sayers, amen? Father, we come before you today, and God, as we give this time to you, God, I pray that our hearts will be stirred. God, I pray that we'll be renewed, refreshed, God. Our country is struggling. We are in deep trouble spiritually in the United States of America. God, I pray that believers would rise up today with grace, with mercy, with love, but with boldness, that we'd be determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God, I just ask that you would stir in this place today. God, would you move in hearts? Holy Spirit, would you move? Father, I pray if there's just one here today that has answered that question, no, I have not truly given my life to Jesus. God, I pray today will be the day of salvation. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.